Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side, anger, fear, aggression. The dark side of the Force are they. Easily they flow, quick to join you in a fight. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Master Yoda describes the Force, a ubiquitous energy source for Jedi Masters that permeates the universe as having two sides. On the light side is Yoda, Luke, and Leia, and Obi-Wan. On the dark side is Darth Vader, clad in black, allied with autocracy and despotism, and engaged in a perpetual battle with the rebel forces who fight for freedom and honor. Star Wars is shot through with this dual structure of the universe, reinforced by similarly coded morality, and enacted in a battle between the two sides. It's a great example of dualism, a term coined in the 18th century, meaning worldviews that describe two fundamental principles, powers, or states of being. There are various degrees of dualism, as well as different types. For example, a worldview might posit two equal principles in the cosmos, one good and one evil. The same worldview might or might not posit that these cosmic principles of good and evil manifest in human beings as either good humans or bad humans, or might posit that within each human, both principles exist. There might or might not be a dual afterlife, a heaven and a hell. And the dualism might be moderate rather than absolute in a number of different ways. For example, the evil is subordinated to the good at the end of time after a final war, in which case we know that good and evil are not evenly matched because we know good will prevail. Such assurance in absolute dualist universes is not on offer. In this episode, we will explore how various religious groups in the past embraced dualism and how this affected the history of the devil. A first question we might pose is, where does dualism come from in Jewish thought in particular? There's not much in the Hebrew Bible that would qualify as dualist. The universe appears to be ruled by either the one God, or occasionally by a God who is superior to and jealous of all other gods. The role of Satan, as we have seen, is relatively minor and largely confined to an adversary who only very occasionally seems to exert a will counter to the divine. In the post-exilic period, after 520 to 515 before the Common Era, apocalyptic dualism appears in Jewish writings, First, in the Book of the Watchers, completed by the mid-3rd century before the Common Era and included in First Enoch, an extra-canonical book that survived in its entirety in Ge'ez, an ancient Ethiopic language. It's an elaboration of the mysterious beginning of Genesis chapter 6, where angels have sex with humans and beget the Nephilim, we don't really know what that word means, and giants. It helps bridge the very abrupt gap in Genesis between the Nephilim slash giants story and the story of the great flood and Noah's Ark that comes right after it. 
In the Book of the Watchers, the sex between angels, here called watchers, and humans is explained as a sinful act of lusty angels, and their descendants, the giants, are morally depraved monsters who murder humans for fun on the weekend. The bad angels have to be rounded up and imprisoned under the earth, the giants have to be destroyed, and all this sparks the great flood of Noah's Ark. For our purposes, the important part of the Book of the Watchers is that it posits a final judgment where all evil will be redressed, and thus an apocalyptic or eschatological, which just means unveiling or end times, dualism. A new strain of Jewish apocalyptic thought was discovered with the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran in the West Bank, especially the War Scroll and the Community Rule. In the Treatise on the Two Spirits, which comes from the Community Rule of Qumran, there is an ethical or psychological element characterized by an inner struggle. Think here perhaps of Luke Skywalker's inner demons. The text was probably composed around the second century before the Common Era, before the Qumran community split from other Palestinian Jews. Dualism here is moderated by eschatological expectation of the purification of the elect. In other words, it's not so deeply dualist that the outcome of the eschaton or the end of time is unknown, but instead, the struggle between good and evil will ultimately be resolved through this final purification and the triumph of the good. The War Scrolls dualism, another text from the Qumran community, appears to have layers of pre-sectarian tradition that were perhaps adapted or elaborated after the schism. It includes an account of an eschatological war at the end of time with two sides, God's side, led by the angel Michael and the sons of light, and the other side led by Belial and the sons of darkness. The key difference between the two parties is centered on ritual purity. The war scrolls structure in which each side wins three battles, and the final battle is won by Michael's side through direct divine intervention of God, encapsulates this eschatological dualism. The structure here is clearly borrowed from Zoroastrian mythology. In the clearly sectarian texts from Qumran, eschatological dualism develops in a way consistent with many religious minorities. The sons of Belial, or sons of darkness, are identified as those outside the group, while they consider themselves to be the sons of Michael, or sons of light. There's also a flattening of the dualism that reduces any psychological internal struggle between good and evil to the simple difference between group membership. Are you in? Are you out? Unlike texts from other religious minoritarian perspectives, there's not a strong element of apocalypticism. Rather, the focus is on the present struggle. Early Christianity inherits much of its apocalyptic dualism from Jewish sources, though direct borrowing from Qumran sources cannot be confirmed. The most thoroughly dualist section of the New Testament is undoubtedly the Gospel of John, though what is at stake is in many ways new, despite similar terms, light and darkness, truth versus lie, etc. John's Gospel makes use of an ethical dualism that uses imagery of darkness and light rhetorically to persuade its readers to take up Christian morality and its corresponding theology and cosmology. 
as Christianity develops in the West, its relationship to dualism becomes more nuanced, largely thanks to the writings of a bishop from North Africa, Augustine of Hippo, who was himself a convert from another religious tradition. It is to the religion of Augustine, before his conversion to Christianity, that we must now turn. The story of this religion begins in third century Babylonia, in modern Iran, where a man called Mani formed a new religion called by its followers the religion of light and known to history as Manichaeism. Mani had been raised in El Qasidic Christianity, known for ablutions, which are ritual washings of particular body parts like your hands, etc., and for ritually washing their food. When Mani was 12 or 13, he received his first revelation from God through an angel, Al-Talm, and at 25 or so, he had another vision of the angel, this time with a twin, recalling the Eastern Christian tradition around the Apostle Thomas, called the twin, said to have been sent east as far as India. It is at the instigation of these angelic revelations that Mani begins spreading his new faith. Much like Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities as presented in the Gospels, Mani presents himself in his writings as arguing with Alkasite religious leaders about the ineffectiveness of their ritual practices. He was given to rather graphic repartee, as when he explained that whether or not you ritually wash the food, the resulting poop comes out the same. Mani saw himself as a prophet and specifically placed himself in line with Buddha in the East, Zoroaster in Persia, and Jesus in the West. Mani described himself as the paraclete, that is, the advocate, known to Christians as the Holy Spirit, announced by Christ, as well as the seal of the prophets. His real innovation was the bringing together of prophets that had never before been considered co-equal within the same worldview. Of course, the seal of the prophets, meaning the final prophet to end all prophecy, is expressly a title later claimed by the prophet Muhammad, and the line of prophets extending from ancient Israel through Jesus also appears in slightly different guise in Islam. Mani rejected the Jewish legal tradition as represented by al Qasite ritual washing and embraced instead a Pauline-style model, entailing a sudden conversion, a dramatic vision, and an apostolic mission to spread the gospel. He traveled extensively as far as India and several cities in Babylon. Mani reportedly argued that his religion was superior to all others, in part because it had taken root in lands across the known world, rather than being confined to the West, like Christianity, or the East, like Buddhism. Mani tried valiantly to instill his religion as the state religion of Iran, but ultimately failed. Some of his more pessimistic and dualistic writings, especially his adaptation of the Enoch narrative called The Book of Giants, decrying the evil of tyrants, might be understood as arising from this experience. Mani was ultimately killed by the Iranian king Bahram I. As in Christianity's remembrance of Jesus's suffering and death in the season of Lent, Mani's death was remembered liturgically by his later followers. Mani's writings described a worldview characterized by two principles and history advancing toward a final Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus, whom he called Jesus the Splendor. The Manichaean community was organized hierarchically according to a basic division into two groups, the elect and the hearers. 
The elect were something like monks. They lived together and practiced abstinence and followed strict dietary rules related to their commitment to nonviolence. This is tied to an extremely complex cosmology in which bits of light are trapped inside all matter. Taken together, these bits of light form a cross that recalls the cross of Jesus, and damaging these bits of light has the potential to damage the cross of light and the heavenly Christ. It was thus up to the hearers to do the work of harvesting plants and preparing them for the elect to eat, to keep the elect from committing acts contrary to their vow of nonviolence. The Pragmatea, written by Mani, describes the origin of the universe and the source of dualism that runs through the Manichaean cosmology. Before the creation of the heavens and the earth, there existed two principles, good and evil. The good principle was personified by the father of greatness and the evil principle by the king of darkness. A complex myth characterized by a series of heavenly wars and the creation of several sets of divine beings ensues. The heavens are made of the flayed skins of a set of evil spirits called archons and the pile of their defunct bodies become layers of the earth. The sun and moon are made by the living spirit filtering the light that had earlier been swallowed by the sons of darkness. This act of filtering will become important for Manichaean religious dietary practices. The rest of creation comes about as a consequence of the messenger filtering out the sin or sperm of the archons and the seed falling to earth to create five trees. Humanity is made as a kind of counter-creation by Ashaklun, the son of the king of darkness, and Nebroel, who had each eaten the children of the spontaneous living abortions brought about by merely gazing at the beauty of the messenger of the female archons. Demons who had eaten other demon abortions gave birth to Adam and Eve. Jesus, the splendor, then awakens Adam from a deep sleep, and Adam is horrified to find the world composed of fractured bits of light and his own soul imprisoned in the material world. The dualism of the Manichaean creation myth is not absolute because the battle between the two sides takes place on a lower realm than that of the father of greatness. Ultimately, then, monism supersedes the otherwise dualist structure. Dualism is also reflected in the central ritual practice of Manichaeans, a ritual meal in which the hearers brought alms in the form of food offerings to the elect. Hearers would make these vegetarian food offerings, thus sustaining the elect and preventing the elect from having to accrue the unavoidable sin of harming the plants as they were harvested and cooked. This sin incurred by the hearers would be forgiven because it was destined as an offering. Then, the elect, in digesting the food, separated out the bits of light trapped in the food through metabolizing it, and the light particles would then be free to ascend to heaven. Although the religion of light would die out in the West by the 6th century or so, Christians would identify what was actually a quite different dualist group as quote-unquote Manichaeans in the 12th and 13th centuries. These were the Cathars. Just before the military assault on Béziers in Languedoc in what is now the south of France in 1209, someone asked Arnaud Amaury, 
Cistercian abbot and papal legate, how to tell the Cathars from the Catholics. So the soldiers would be able to kill the heretics, but spare the Catholics. Amaury replied, kill them all. God will know his own. The gathered military forces then began a campaign at the behest of the Pope against a group of heterodox Christians, heretics, that is, in the eyes of Catholics, who generally call themselves good Christians, but are better known today as the Cathars. Cathar belief and practice likely arose from a group of Eastern Christians called Bogomils, and like the Manichaeans, centered around two classes of practitioners, ordinary adherents and a smaller circle called the perfect. The perfect, after a rigorous preparation of fasts, received the ritual consolamentum, a laying on of hands similar to Catholic priestly ordination, after which the person was permitted to say a version of the Lord's Prayer or Our Father and was required to follow an arduous way of life. All foods that were the result of sex were forbidden, including animal products such as meat and dairy. But fish were allowed, since at the time people thought fish were spontaneously generated in water. So they were, in effect, pescatarian, but otherwise vegan. Sex was likewise forbidden to perfects. Why the aversion to sex, dairy, and meat? The answer has to do with Cathar theology and why the Cathars feature prominently in this episode on dualism. There were two main varieties of dualism among Cathars and the Bogomils from which many of their views derived, a moderate dualist group and a radical dualist group. Both groups believed that the material world, including human bodies, was created by Satan and that humans resulted from the imprisonment of souls of good angels in these bodies created by Satan. The moderates and radicals differed, however, in their accounts of Satan's origins and relation to God. For the moderates, Satan was God's second in command, a fallen angel who would ultimately be conquered by God at the end of time. The radical dualists, on the other hand, believed that there was an evil God, co-eternal with the good God. The evil principle, his agent Satan, and his creation will never end, although the good angels will eventually be released from their imprisonment. There were for the radicals two creations, holy, distinct, and eternal, the evil one in which we live, and a good spiritual creation. One of the more colorful episodes in Cathar creation narratives comes from a borrowed Bogomil text, The Secret Supper, or The Secret Supper of John, in which Satan creates the material world and forces two angels to inhabit the bodies he has fashioned from clay, one male and one female. The angels weep for being embodied, and especially for their sexual differentiation. Then the devil incites lust in the woman and takes the form of a serpent and, quote, sated his lust on her with the serpent's tail, end quote. It's easy to exoticize Cathar belief and practice. Most people probably regarded them as pious, committed Christians, and in this, they probably presented an admirable alternative to the often lax morals of Catholic clergy of the 12th and 13th centuries. The appeal of Cathar street preachers to common folk was probably less based on their fascinating mythologies and more on their critique of the Catholic clergy, a complaint common among religious movements that would, unlike the Cathars, be accepted as religious orders within the Catholic fold. 
and the dualism of the Cathars, especially the moderate branch, is not so very far away from Catholic orthodoxy, which had its own dualist tendencies. It often valued the spirit over the flesh. It embraced apocalyptic eschatology characterized by the defeat of evil by the good at the end of time, and it cast Satan as God's enemy. Dualism then is the binary mode of thinking about existence and morality without which there could be no devil. Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader, light versus dark, good versus evil. There is no question that this way of viewing the world, while reflected in extinct religions and sects, extends to our own cultural myths. This is worrying for a number of reasons. One is the obvious point that the stark oppositions in dualist systems tend to obfuscate shades of gray. Another related problem is that cosmic dualism lends itself to a kind of moralizing that sorts people into sheep and goats, saved and damned, and easily justifies oppression. Fry describes the nature of the Qumran sectarian writings this way. The border between the realms of light and darkness is drawn not between the good and the wicked, but simply at the margin of the yahad, the community. In other words, those in my group are good, those not in my group are evil. Charting metaphysical and ethical categories of light versus darkness and good versus evil, as we will do in this episode, is a necessary precursor to understanding demonization and its attendant forms of oppression, both in the Middle Ages and beyond. Last episode, we focused on demonic possession and exorcism, both of which pertain to a peculiar union between two forms of being, namely spirit and body. This week, we will have the chance to question whether it was the human body that was evil all along. In the different origin stories we encounter, the creation of the world and human beings represent a dubious origin rather than something celebrated as pristine and divine. This applies to our bodies and what we think of as normal human existence, but also to the earth we inhabit, the entire visible realm of things we see and feel. This perspective, which roughly approximates the three traditions we will be talking about today, that is sectarian Essenes from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Manichaeans and the Cathars, is typically grouped together under the heading dualism or dualistic. Travis, what do we mean when we say this word? Well, it's one of those umbrella terms that really covers a lot of ground. We can tease out several different kinds of dualism, and that actually might be helpful going forward as we look at these different groups so that we can compare them a little better. Mm -hmm. So the term itself has Orientalist origins. It comes from the early 18th century. And there, one of the first types that I want to just mention briefly is the ethical um, the ethical dualism is kind of a philosophical term talking about right and wrong, the sort of two-sidedness of right and wrong. Because, mm -hmm. of course, dual, dualism more broadly is about the two rather than the one or the many, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the term, of course, means. So moving then to the psychological, that's when you kind of locate those two forces struggling perhaps within the human person. Um, so you've taken the realm from kind of philosophical outward debate inside and internal. And that's the psycho psychological dualism. If we talk about that, that's what we mean. Mm. There's also, when you're thinking about, I suppose, 
<laughs> theological or philosophical anthropology, there's a mind-body dualism that can emerge, certainly when we get to talking about uh, the Orthodox Christian uh, perspective, that is mm -hmm. you know, Catholic Christianity in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. um, that there's the, the, a separation between an evaluation of uh, mind or spirit or soul over, on the other hand, body. And that, right. that divide is really important. Um, there's cosmic dualism we can talk about. That's sort of the structure of the universe. Um, the good side and the bad side, for example. The light and the dark we see come up in several of these texts. Mm -hmm. heaven, and then, heaven and earth, sort of, or heaven and hell. You know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then the apocalyptic is looking at the sort of unveiling or revealing at the end of time. That's what the word means. And so apocalyptic dualism will right. sometimes be characterized, but you'll have maybe an Armageddon that is a final battle between two sides. Um, perhaps evil will be overcome or perhaps if we don't know the outcome, it just all depends on the, the system, but that's apocalyptic dualism. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So the concept to review is modern, but its use does capture how Christian polemicists and fun word heresiologists, and those are people who study heresy or who combat heresy um, or false opinions about the church, about church doctrine. Um, so these folks, the Christian polemicists and heresiologists like to group different communities and ideas together into an ideal type and often enough a straw man opponent. And that's how dualism then contrasts with what we call monism or monotheism, on the other hand, right? We have either the two or the one. In Orthodox Christian thought, even if God is being opposed by rebellious fallen angels and corrupted human beings, God is the creator of all, the, the governor of all, God's in charge. And thus, mm -hmm. God's goodness and existence underpin everything. Dualism, on the other hand, posits an alternative source of being, often linked to darkness, evil, materiality, the material world, whereas divinity is associated with lightness, spirit, and rationality. And I don't want to overdraw the contrast here between, you know, Orthodox Christianity, which has no dualism to it, and then these other systems that do. It's not quite as simple as we'll see. There are elements of dualism that can appear even in Orthodox Christian thought. That's, that's really interesting. And so, you know, you mentioned heresiology or heresiologists, people who are fighting false opinions and creating these idol types. It seems like dualism is then a sort of artificial construct that doesn't really do justice to like the lived realities of the traditions or religions or ideas that it gets bound up with. That's, that's a fair assessment, but I would still say that, you know, there is something useful in thinking about that term as we talk about and analyze these traditions, the polemical categorization of the dualist, you know, functions because it captured something authentic about mm. these various communities we're, we're talking about. There's, in other words, there's something real behind it, mm. even if the category isn't perfect. You know, it can have a flattening effect if that's all you talk about when you look at a particular religious group. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So to reference The Exorcist, which we were talking about in a different episode, uh, Max von Sudow's character says, the devil lies by mixing in the truth, right? Right. So the polemicists are sort of like the devil. They take the most interesting part of the truth about the Manichaeans or the Cathars, and they, they, they put that into their own projections and their own agendas. And so it does capture something real, like you said, but it's like it's being used for a purpose that 
isn't quite authentic. Exactly. Sometimes even heresiologists in the Middle Ages would look back to previous heretical groups and use especially the dualist elements that they're seeing in contemporary religious groups, you know, um, heresies as they would call them. And they're saying, oh, this is just a bubbling up the same old heresy that we've mm-hmm. seen before, even it's, when that's yeah, not the yeah. case. It's the eternal, it's like the eternal recurrence of certain stock types of heresies, right? It's, and it's always, it always has to be the repetition of the same thing over and over. Exactly. And that's how you're able to, you recognize it because it's the same. And if it doesn't fit, you kind of force it in. Yeah. 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 Makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Uh, Travis, you already covered some of the basic background of each of the three communities. And right now I just want to sort of take some time for us to draw out some, some common features and make some comparisons. Great. Um, And so, yes, like uh, the first thing I think we'll talk about is uh, that, you know, each of the three traditions has a sort of complicated relationship to political power. Uh, they're, they're sort of, they're distant from political power. They're marginalized. The one exception is with the Manichaeans who were able to gain political backing among the Uyghurs in what is now the Chinese region of Xinjiang for centuries, uh, but were suppressed in, their, in Mani's homeland by the, the Sassanids in, in Persia and Mesopotamia, and eventually by uh, Muslim caliphates. In Northern Africa, which is part of the Roman Empire and the empire in the Mediterranean world more broadly, the Manichaeans or the religion of light as they were known to themselves, uh, remained a minority and lost out big with Christianity's ascent to institutional supremacy with Constantine in the fourth century of the common era. A lot of what we know then comes from the point of view of the victors And so we get a lot of information in the Western Latin Catholic context from uh, Augustine of Hippo, who's writing in North Africa in the fourth and fifth centuries of the common era, as well as the Persian polymath and Muslim scholar Al-Biruni in the 10th and 11th centuries. This is not to say that Mani, the the founder of Manichaeism, didn't seek out an alignment with Persian royal power, but he never succeeded. And the ensuing persecutions really seem to be crucial context for the development of the dualistic themes in Mani's thought and art, especially his pragmataia or legends of the, of the giants. It should also be said that the sectarian Essenes at Qumran were likewise outside the political and religious mainstream in late ancient Palestine. They seem to have been a separatist monastic community, potentially at odds with the Hasmonean rulers, that's this dynasty of Jewish rulers who were descendants of the Maccabees. As we've discussed before on this podcast, it was the domination of Israel by a series of conquering empires, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, and most especially Seleucid and then Roman, that gave rise to apocalyptic theology in Judaism. And it is this apocalyptic streak that ties in closely to the dualistic eschatological struggle between Michael, good angel on God's side, and Belial in the War Scroll, which is one of these documents from Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Theology, mythology, and warfare all run together here while anticipating an influential definition of the political, which is the opposition between friends and enemies. So yeah, we can sort of see dualism as playing into modern ideas of politics that we can sort of draw that connection and 
in maybe in later episodes. But uh, regarding the Cathars, uh, the root heresy of uh, Bogomilism develops in Bulgaria in the context of imperial domination by the Byzantine Empire. And this, of course, goes together with religious domination by the Orthodox Church based in Constantinople. And so we can sort of see dualism as representing a religious form of protest against what appears to be these concentric circles of evil empires. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> Go, getting back into the Star Wars, uh, the Star Wars motifs. Very, well, yeah. that's why it's useful, right? Because you're sure, able to, yeah. it's like, if you see the world in these stark terms and you're experiencing at the same time this political oppression or struggle, then it makes all the sense in the world to maybe amplify those themes from within your religious thought world. Yeah, making it, making it match up and, and sort of it creates a kind of uh, feedback loop effect of, exactly. of, of reality and, and, and ideology. Um, so like we think about Catharism, it's, it's in terms of how it plays into this dynamic, it's, it's most widespread in Languedoc, which is in Southern France, as well as in Lombardy in Italy. If, if anyone plays Carcassonne, the sort of idea of building castles comes out of the, the Cathar yes. tradition. Um, You've you got to build your castles because the Crusaders are coming to kill you. Um, but in, bo in both uh, southern France and in Lombardy and Italy, uh, we're dealing with uh, political environments that are really decentralized with an emphasis on local power. Um, and this sort of decentralization enabled the Cathars to win toleration as well as converts from among the ruling elites. And this, this worked for a while. Uh, you know, they were tolerated by princes who wanted to sort of keep control over their own territories and didn't want outsiders, whether they be imperial or religious, you know, meddling in their affairs. Or in some cases, you know, they, they were actually converted and practiced in uh, what the Cathars saw as the authentic form of Christianity. Uh, but eventually, in France especially, we have this regional dynastic ambitions of the northern French royalty centered in Paris, as well as this uh, slow burn of religious enthusiasm and piety that's, that's, that's bubbling out of uh, what gets called the Gregorian reforms from the 11th and 13th century. And it's also moment, that, that political yeah. movement is also, fun fact, why people don't speak what used to be the vernacular of in the south of France, which we right. sometimes call Occitan or Provençade. It's It became replaced by what the French, the invading northern French royalty were speaking, modern French, which became modern French. Right. So we had this kind of like preview of of like modern nationalism a little bit with the the way that the kingdom of France is is trying to dominate you know, this all of Gaul, basically. Um, so yeah, so when thinking about like the religious side, uh, we with through the Gregorian reforms and through the rise of uh, the preaching orders. So moving from a, a, a culture of religious orders that had these uh, monastic communities that were sort of set aside from the world. Um, it part of the sort of increasing the quality of religious education for ministers, clergy, preachers, as well as for the laity. Along with that, you also have these uh, religious orders that are being sent out that are devoted to fighting heresy, like the Cathars, and preaching in a way that's effective for uh, sort of creating interest and devotion among the general population. Does that, does that sound right? That makes yeah, sense? That's, that's absolutely right. Um, one of the reasons that 
the Catholic Church felt the need to make a new emphasis on preaching and especially on street preaching was because these Cathar street preachers were so effective. They were out in your local villages critiquing especially the morality of the clergy and saying, those guys are living like princes, the monks up on the hill, the priest in your local parish, um, they're not following the, the vows that they've taken of poverty, of chastity, et cetera. And they're winning converts through preaching in the native language on the street. Um, and so one of the reasons that I think the papacy decides to endorse some of these new religious movements, especially street preachers that you've mentioned, is because they're they're kind of losing on the streets. Their street cred is really suffering. Their street cred is suffering. Um, and so there's a, we have the Cathars to thank, I suppose. <laughs> thank? I don't know. Uh, it depends on how you feel about these particular orders. But um, for the rise of these movements, the other thing to think about is from the perspective of, you know, your average person in the south of France, there's not a, this great difference between the orthodox and the heretical folks. Their complex origin myths, et cetera, are not what's front and center. What's front and center are these debates around morality. And so when you see how these folks are living, how they're, what they're preaching about, and you see the realities around you, this was really quite convincing. And so you can see Cathars as, in some sense, part of a larger movement toward popular religion and the inculcation of certain kinds of piety among just regular folks who are becoming more engaged in their religion and joining religious orders in large numbers in the same time period. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, as far as I understand, uh, the Dominicans, you know, one of these preaching orders that's sent out to, that originates in their, their struggle against the Cathars, essentially, if I'm getting that yes. history right. Yes, it, They actually imitated the dress of uh, the, the perfecti or the, you know, the, the sort of the higher order of the, uh, the Cathar sort of uh, church in the sort of simple black robes was, it was, a, it was an imitation of the way the Dominicans, or the way the Cathars uh, presented themselves. Um, and so, yeah, there was this, so, you know, the, the, just as you were saying, it's hard to distinguish like, oh, her, heretics from Orthodox, um, the Dominicans and the other, the other um, preaching orders, the friars, they try to then tap into that enthusiasm for simplicity and austerity and it actually sort of imitate the, the Cathars uh, to, to get their street cred back. Exactly. So there's this, um, on the one hand, it can be hard to distinguish between the, the Cathar folks and the Orthodox folks. Um, on the other, we rely on the ability to be able to distinguish when you have a street preacher um, critiquing the church. So I just want to recognize that there's a bit of tension there, but I think both are true. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just to sort of round out the section on, on the, the political side of things, uh, the Cathars, their political bases are under siege because the Pope authorizes a crusade against them. And so there is an intense military conflict in the area, you know, hence the, the castles of Carcassonne, the German board game that has, that has swept the globe in popularity. Um, and there's also a wave after the military conflicts uh, burn out, uh, there's also then a purging of the population uh, through inquisitions that are, are authorized and, and headed by local bishops, but then also increasingly by 
members of these preaching orders like the Dominicans who are expert in hunting out, sniffing out the, the stink, the foul stench of heresy, uh, as, yes. as it were. Yes. Um, so uh, I, I like this one quotation uh, from a historian who talks about the end of the Cathars and sort of sets it down to this kind of really life and death existential struggle. Uh, quote, a small inquisitional elite confronted a small heretical elite and over many years beat them. <laughs> this really, really ominous, you know, sort of a sense of, of, uh, of hunting, persecution, and just yeah. force, this force of will to just crush dissent and, and plurality of, of uh, perspectives on Christianity. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that just a little bit about the way that the this medieval inquisition that serves as a kind of precursor to the Spanish Inquisition, which happens a few hundred years later, um, what it was like. For the most part, the inquisition wasn't burning everyone they talked to. In fact, the idea was to avoid burning heretics and right. instead to get you to rat out the church hierarchy, as you said, your quote from this historian, it's fantastic. It's the heretical elite that they're going for, but they have to, they thought of it and used language of rooting out heresy, deracinating it, pulling it out of the ground. Right, right. And so to do that, you right. get everyone to, if you just confess, you'll be forgiven, we can move on, but you have to give us names. Um, and so lots of people would do that eventually. We also get a lot of our information about these heretical groups from strange sources, right? From sources that are unfriendly to the movement. And one of the sources is this inquisition. So you have to be careful as a historian about who to trust in terms of right. if you're, when you're right. trying to get at Cathar theology, that's an important thing to remember. But people did burn, people did die um, who refused to recant, often the perfects who had already made these incredible sacrifices and had taken up this rigorous way of life, uh, this asceticism of frequent fasting of restricted diet of um the celibacy. prohibition celibacy yeah. exactly these were the folks who were committed to to die for the church to die for what they believed and so people did of course not only in the military military um crusades but also as a result of the inquisition people did um burn um, but for the most part this was i think as we look at the history of ideas that the techniques of the Inquisition get developed, get tried out here for the first time. And the records themselves are totally fascinating. Getting that fine-grained detail of what, of what we imagine it was like for an ordinary person to encounter these ideas and, and this religious movement. Yeah. And I think also to sort of get it back to the political for a second, we, we often think about the, the Crusades as being directed eastward you know, towards the Holy Land yes, and, you know, targeting Jews, targeting mm -hmm. Eastern Christians, targeting Muslims. And, and that's all true, obviously. I mean, that, that's, that's so much of it. But it's also interesting to, to sort of, to keep in mind that it could also be turned inward in, in the West and used to suppress whole populations that were ostensibly in the, the quote unquote, uh, good Catholic sections of Europe. Exactly. And when we think about the motivations for that, I'm glad that you're continually bringing up the political. The political is super important for understanding why this happened. At the same time, I think the reason the religious, that there was also this accompanying religious motivation for um, the sense that heresy represented a 
mortal threat to orthodoxy and could only be confronted by these extreme measures. Um, I think that speaks to this particular heresy's potential for popularity. They saw this, they saw what was going on and they said, we have to stop this at all costs. And that's weird, right? Because it makes, it almost make it can sort of, when we see like, oh, right, Catharism was actually really appealing. It's sort yes. of in some ways, it's like, it almost justifies what the church does, which of course we don't, it was not what we want to do, but we're like, yeah, they were right. I mean, they had a formidable opponent there. Um, <laughs> they would have, I think they would have lost in the South of France, right. Right, frankly. Right. So, no, right. I, I'm not condoning their actions. Um, but you could stretch. see, you could see how, you could see their thought process. It's very, it's very easy to trace. Like, Exactly. Wait a second, <laughs> we have a huge problem here. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, they hadn't seen such a an existential threat from an, a religious group since probably Arianism, all the except for in Spain. Given this interesting parallel in the political fortunes of each of the groups that we've talked about, we might consider how it influenced the dualistic view of evil that each tradition is known for. So, in other words, how does this political situation of each of these groups being on the margins, being on the outside, how does that influence, do we think, their dualistic view of the world and especially of evil? Right. In each of the three traditions, the discussion of evil has a lot to do with the beginning of the world. And I think that that idea of a beginning ties into the political, the idea of, of granting authority to create something or having creation arise through a battle. We get these military metaphors, this political sense of grounding or founding. This kind of goes back to a political problem in many senses. Yeah, there's um, a tie between maybe the kingship too um, and creation. Like who's in charge, who's in control? Where's the source of everything? Those questions I think are tied in all of these traditions. Right, exactly. Um, but to sort of see like how creation and what creation has to do with evil, we can look at Mani's legends where the creation of human beings and the world itself occurs as a result of demonic pollution. And all the trouble begins when the king of darkness, who's just there to, to sort of to lay that out, the king of darkness isn't created, yeah. he's, he's, he's just there. Mm -hmm. And he attempts to invade the domain of light governed by the father of greatness. It gets very complicated, but basically uh, in the course of their struggle, other divine beings of light are consumed, regurgitated, and ultimately embedded in the dark stuff of matter by, uh, by these beings that Mani refers to as archons or, or we'd say, mm -hmm. just like demons. And so what the Abrahamic faiths consider to be divine creation appears in Mani's world as this almost like fecal cosmic waste. In many cases, like these cast off abortions or devoured remains, it's, it's kind of gross. And it's not all that far from the similarly kind of negative and maybe not as gross uh, <laughs> Cathar, Cathar conception of how the world gets created. So for example, in a text that you should totally go find and read called The Secret Supper of John, the devil, and this is one of the uh, texts that's borrowed from the Bogomil tradition that's ad adopted wholesale into Catharism. I got to say that the, the Secret Supper of John sounds like the, the sequel to the Dead Poet Society. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's amazing. Um, and there is, there is actually all this like theme of this secret society stuff going on in Catharism yeah, exactly. as a result of the political exactly. situation, right? Like underground exactly. church and all that. 
exactly. Um, anyway, in this text, uh, <laughs> which is you know the sequel to the Dead Poet Society, called The Secret Supper of John, you've got a devil who's nearly as powerful as God, working as a kind of slightly junior partner and regulator of creation, which actually made me think about orthodoxy and readings of the first chapter of John, you know, where it's right. the it's the word who creates and the relationship between, you know, mm-hmm. the Trinity there. Anyway, mm-hmm. through a familiar plot point, the devil attempts to supplant God. We know the story, right? Yeah. Fails to do so, falls, but through divine indulgence is given the chance to create the world that we know, right? So it's sort of like a second chance for the devil and the devil's it's not like, clear why. It's not clear to me why this was a good idea, but whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> is this a merciful God? Is that like out yeah, where this is coming from? We don't know, right? Again, paucity of sources, etc. So the role of a creator who is not the highest God is called the demiurge. And that might be a term familiar from, you know, Greek mythology um, or Greek philosophical descriptions and accounts yeah. of the one and whatnot, um, but kind of a workshop worker. Uh, similar to Manny's vision or Mani's vision. I keep saying Manny like Manny. Manny, like <laughs> M-A-N-N-Y, like Manuel. Like that's, I don't know why in my head, Manny, it's like someone I know. Yeah. Anyway, similar to Manny's vision, uh, probably closer to the Persian question mark. Uh, the familiar wor- world is fundamentally corrupt, demonic. Another similar point is that this Cathar text imagines human souls as angels who were seduced to earth by Satan to inhabit the bodies that he had fashioned out of clay. So these angel souls, in the beginning at least, that's how creation comes about. Children are the spawn of Satan, literally, right? After that, Mm. because of the the bodies um, and how they're made. So like Mani's idea of the particles of light trapped in the flawed material world, the Cathars also see human beings as fundamentally trapped in a broken system. You know, the details are different, but that kind of mixture is, is quite similar. Right. Yeah. And this idea of like a broken system, a broken world really flies in the face of creation in Orthodox Christian and Jewish uh, narratives. And this is the thing that surprised me as being like sort of consistent between these true traditions that are separated by hundreds of years and considerable distance. Both Manichaeans and Cathars take a similar stance regarding the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. They hate it. (laughs) They hate a lot of it anyway. Um, You you see this revulsion in the way they turn God the creator from Genesis into either a devilish demiurge or turn creation itself into a foul physical breakdown of demonic bodies. Mani understood himself to be in the mantle of Paul the Apostle, who can be seen as overcoming Jewish legalism and for Mani, Judeo-Christian provincialism in order to bring about a religion that was more ecumenical and more cosmopolitan. Oh yeah, he seems to really pat himself on the back for that, right? It's like I get it. Other religions. (laughs) He's like, you know, Jesus was popular in the West. You know, that's all he achieved. And in the East, the Buddha was only popular in the East. But look at me, I got people, you know, here in the middle in in Persia or Babylon at the time, right? Yeah, people all all over. I went to India, uh, following the footsteps of you know Thomas, the legends of Thomas the Apostle. Anyway, I, I kind of enjoyed that part, but it's also really it feels. Doesn't it feel like really modern to want it's, a religion it's, that's global? It's like a perennialist philosophy, like the idea that there are like there are certain concepts and ideas and truths that are that are like eternal and consistent across genuine religious or philosophical investigation. And so, yeah, that does seem mm-hmm. very, very modern. And it, you can see exactly why and how, like going straight to the Babylonian rulers, right, trying to get the kings on board would make sense for this 
kind of empire or worldwide, you know, ultimately true religion that fits right in with that. Again, going back to the politics and religion tie here, right, um, right, that claim right. of, you know, rulership over all of these lands um, fits right in with his vision of a global, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. empire oriented religion. And the antipathy to Judaism uh, fits into yes. his own biography. So yes. he's raised in this Elchaseistic tradition, which in, ma- you know, in many ways borrows a lot and inherits a lot from Christianity, but practices ritual purity and the Jewish uh, law. And so he is rejecting his, the faith of his childhood in, in this sense uh, for something that's broader, less parochial, more tied into this kind of ecumenical, cosmopolitan, imperial vision um, right and in that way i mean it mirrors some readings at least of of paul like expanding outward and, and looking exactly, at yeah. like envisioning jewish um judaism as a whole as legalistic as provincial um when <laughs> that's not a fair reading at all of course but right yeah just to be clear right <laughs> that's, <laughs> just that's to a, be clear that's a very particular and very uh and very particular way of thinking about this that um shouldn't be universalized in any sense um but anyway, so like also, but you know, similarly, the Cathars describe Moses, who's you know arguably one of the most important figures of the Hebrew Bible, as the servant of the devil, uh, and other prophets as as being these devilish tools to obscure the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And this takes uh, Christian supersessionism, or the idea that there's a kind of religious progression from the time of the Israelites to the coming of Christ, and that there's a kind of fulfillment. Um, of of the promise in Judaism and sort of making it more perfect in Christianity, uh, and this is very condescending historical teleological optimism, uh, and it throws that out the window because you have instead, uh, especially in Catharism, an opposition between a religion, a false religion of the devil, a false religion of the demiurge, and it's radical opposite. You have, you know, this is sort of the religion of the God of light, the God of love. Well, another way of looking at that though, is that it kind of out supersedes supersessionism, right? Exactly. Yeah. It goes, right, it right. takes it one step further. It's kind of an exaggeration of what it's already kind of denigrating uh, certain aspects, you might say, of uh, Jewish and ancient Israelite religion and says, well, actually, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Um, right. Right. Yikes. Not, yeah. not really... Um, the metaphor I was looking for, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sort of it sort of goes back to the beginning of Exodus. I feel like in terms of in terms of the uh, in terms of the imagery, yes. but mm-hmm. um, yes, but yeah, um, but yeah. One last thing I just want to say about Catharism: we we might sort of see a, a correlation between this anti-Judaism and a more intense form of dualism. Mm-hmm. So, like as you said before, that it seems right. Like when Catharism was building in strength, it wasn't really foregrounding its theology or mythology very much. It was foregrounding its ethics and its sort of um, yeah. sincerity, its apostolic sincerity and simplicity. Um, but as it kind of develops, uh, we get a more intense dualism. Uh, and the and I would say like the more intense the dualism, the greater the allergy to the theology and the ideas and the thought world of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and yet we can see that different versions and intensities of dualism are present in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, which is itself a Jewish context. That's right. Yeah, this doesn't come, this, this isn't alien to Jewish thought at all. Uh, so in, for example, in the War Scroll, we've got Belial, the demonic adversary, who is described as having been, quote, created for the pit, end quote, by God. 
right? The opposition between the children of light and the children of darkness appears in different scrolls, different texts from Qumran as largely predestined, willed into being by God. Mm-hmm. This kind of rhymes with, if you will, the categorization of humanity into insiders and outsiders. Uh, here particularly, you know, no bones about it, the Qumran community, in, that means inside our community here, then you're children of light. If you're an outsider, if you're not part of our community, you're children of darkness eventually, right? Um, and there are different hierarchical classifications applying to to each, but especially to the insiders, right? You have their ranks here. So interesting relation perhaps between dualism with this kind of extra hierarchy that's part of it that we could talk about with the other groups perhaps. Um, And we find something similar there, that insider-outsider dynamic also in Manichaeism and Catharism. Yet, according to the dualistic Jewish apocalyptic perspective, God alone is in the driver's seat. Okay, we know how this story is going to end. His cosmic opponent is always at a disadvantage, uh, particularly in eschatological terms. When we're thinking about the end of the world, you know, where is this going? This probably would appear closer to some of the more moderate forms of dualism found in earlier Cathar theology, but clashes with the more radical expressions that we see with, you know, Nicetas, um, the bishop, and uh, the other texts that form the radical kind of wing of the later Cathars. Right, right. Um, and I, th- I think you sort of see a family resemblance between maybe say the more moderate Cathar vision of creation and evil and the sort of overcoming of evil, the idea of, of a satanic rebellion with the Essene vision of things. But it's, I would say like with, with Mani and Manichaeism, the religion of light, there's, I, we might be different dealing with a different, totally different thought world of when it comes to evil. Does, does that seem right to you? I mean, I think so. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, you've got this more materialist. The first thing to say might be the, that there's a more materialist version of evil than you have with, with orthodoxy. Um, it's not possible in Manny's thought world to imagine incarnation working the same way, right? Where flesh gets... Um, affected and blessed uh, by God taking on humanity. No, that's not possible. In this thought world, matter itself is is created by, well, a complicated series of events, but it's evil, I guess. <laughs> it does, um, complicated however, series of events. right? <laughs> this gets very weird, the abortions, et cetera, the, the demon, demon sperm. Um, but I would say that complicating that a little bit is that the Mani's world is scattered with and mixed with particles of light throughout the world. So the the world around you still does have some good in it, even though you're fighting to fix and separate that through, you know, this dietary um, and uh, liturgical scheme, right? These meals where you're filtering the the elect literally in their bodies, they're digesting and and therefore filtering out the light that can escape and go back to heaven. So I think materialist, I would say, if I had to describe yeah. quickly the, the yeah. Manichaean worldview. I, I think it's also, it's like almost more morally neutral too. It's like, well, there is a light side yeah. to the, sh- you know, there's a, there's a shadow side to the light, you know, and it just is that way. It isn't about some complicated rebellion, even though the, even though the, the dark side, the material side does want to consume the light. 
Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're almost, it's almost more metaphysical. Like they're in opposition. It's um, not, it's not the same as a, as the stories of Satan's fall. Those are so heavily moralized. You have a cosmology that's right in the Orthodox worldview that has and in the Cathar, all this weight. And in the Cathar worldview too, right? Um, yeah. From that, that secret, su- the secret supper. Yeah. Start yes. Robin Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in peace, Robin Williams. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's something more about, that you've pointed to already about the, the world just already, like the, the prince, the king of darkness just is, right? And, yeah. and the world comes about and that's the state of things. And so there's a progression, something you have to do about evil, um, a set of rituals, and you do have to be good, right? It's not just you eat it and it goes away. You have to be a, you know, part of this, this group of the elect, right? So you have to be part of this group of folks who with their morality can then digest and do this thing. Um, so it's not absent at all, a kind of moral dualism that's present, but it's just not nearly as pronounced and, and thoroughgoing as either orthodoxy or Cathar visions of evil. And I think the other thing, uh, not, and I think that there is a high moral standard to this, this world that, that is, is the religion of later monarchism. But I do think that Mani's talents as an artist really play into the way he imagines it. And so Mani is, when he, Mani's trying to explain where the particles of light are in this sort of uh, materially evil world, uh, it, you know, the particles of light are in like the, the way things taste, like the way, the, you know, it's like what tastes good or, or the colors that look beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. the sounds that are, that are, they're harmonious. Um, it, it's like this very experiential way of thinking about this, you know, the, the presence of good or light. Um, and it makes it more immediate and more aesthetic in a certain sense. Um, and I just, I just think it's a, an, an interesting contrast. It, it, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking about the relationship between good and evil as this sort of relationship between media or, or, or different, different intensities of light or different pitches of sound, of, you know, versus this kind of very moralized, politicized uh, battle. Yeah, and the introduction of aesthetics, I'm glad you brought that up, actually reminds me in a very vague way of certain strands of Greek philosophy where the good and the beautiful are alive. Yes, right, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it gets some, it feels some, kind of vaguely Greek to me. Some, some Republic, some Republic action. Some yeah, yeah, action. just little yeah. vibes, Republic vibes. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about for the Cathars and the Essenes? What about the evil there? Is that, how does it compare to this? It seems that and I think Manichaeism is capacious enough to include the military metaphors that the Essenes and the Cathars seem to rely on and, and in lived out, you know, like, especially with the Cathars, yes. we know the Cathars, yes. like this was a, this was a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem that uh, the mythology that we see in the Cathars and Essenes is more centered on political metaphors, military metaphors, um, in the case of the Essenes, militarist, like sort of militarized rituals and liturgies, yeah. um, that the world of, of, of worship and, and, pra- and spiritual practice was infused with these military motifs. Um, and I think that from what I can see from Manichaean mythology, like they can handle that, but like there's also this whole other level of thinking about things at the material level, at the mundane level, at the aesthetic level, that we don't really see, I think, in what we, what we have, you know, this, it should be noted that we have very limited insight into the worlds of the Essenes and the Manichaeans because, um, especially with the Manichaeans, they were so forcefully suppressed 
Um, but just to, you know, it, it, it does seem like there's, there's a, there's a greater dimension there than the kind of battle between light and darkness that we get in the text from the, uh, the Essenes and, and the Cathars. Yeah, I think that's right. The Cathars, you still have, you know, the devil created the world and a similar moral system to orthodoxy. There's kind of a closer cousin relationship than, of course, the orthodox folks want to admit between how evil is worked out in the, in the Cathar system and Cathar theology, with a major difference being what the world is like. Again, echoing a bit the Manichaean materialist view. Mm -hmm. Um, but not to the extent, of course, that the heresiologists, these polemical sources want to say, they're literally calling Cathars, oh, you're just Manichaeans, right? Right, Um, But there are some similarities there. Yeah, but I agree about what you're saying about the the difference in how military struggles and um, a kind of military dualism, especially end of the world and also beginning of the world, those touchstones, plays out in these different systems between Manichaeans, Cathars, and Essenes. So one question we might want to think about as we're wrapping up is whether we should come away from this thinking that monism triumphed over dualism or whether we're left with something a little bit more complex. Right. So in the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, the apocalyptic dualism that's espoused there gets absorbed pretty directly into early Christianity, especially the cosmic dualistic elements of the book of Revelation. The Dead Sea Scrolls, may not be the master key for explaining particular sections of the New Testament, like the Johannine materials, that is the Gospel of John, but there are striking similarities. This doesn't reflect a direct unilateral influence, but instead the broader appeal and use of dualistic imagery and narrative in different streams of late antique Jewish thought, including early Christianity. What about the influence of Mani's religion of light? Klaus, what do you think? Yeah, I think what's really interesting here is that one of our most useful sources about Manichaeism is uh, the great doctor of Catholic orthodoxy, Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine's insight into Manichaeism is all the more valuable because of the fact that he himself converted to Manichaeism. Mm-hmm. He persisted in it for about a decade and then abandoned it for Catholicism, uh, you know, in the fifth century. Yeah, and just thanks, because- Ambrose. Yeah, yeah, what a jerk. Uh, <laughs> Bishop Milan. Know, right. Um, but just because Augustine rejects Mani's teachings, it doesn't mean that important concepts and myths from Manichaeism vanish from his thinking. On the contrary, I mean, like, with, like the Manichaeans, Augustine understood sin or evil as deeply related to the lusts of the flesh. And we could see this as possibly damning material creation, the human body, as indelibly sinful. And yet Augustine's like really trying to walk this tightrope of at once affirming the goodness of things that God created while centering his understanding of human existence and psychology around lust or, or what he calls concupiscence. And so like, it's almost like a splinter of Manichaean dualism sort of trapped in the, the flesh of his, of his theology. And, you know, the enemies of his within Catholicism at the time saw this very well. Um, this guy, Julian of Aclanum, points this mm-hmm. out and argues that, that Augustine is a Manichaean. He, he, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a covert Manichaean. Um, and so this centering of lust in his theory of human sinfulness has a huge impact on Western morality, uh, arguably, I would say, almost certainly to the present day. And it, it's this feature that has filtered through almost every denomination, schism or revival of Christianity in the West. You know, you, 
to, you know, if you're in a, in a very high church setting or a very sort of revivalistic setting, it, it, it's, it's something that you can point to as a constant, I would say. Um, and then maybe that's, maybe that's a little bit too ahistorical, but um, it seems to be a, a feature that really keeps getting worked over again and again. Um, and it's something that continues to affect the people who get labeled as diabolical, demonic, or subhuman. I mean, as a queer person, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There's there's something inescapable about that particular part of the Western Christian tradition that is a kind of haunting. I would say, similar to the haunting of that you pointed to that Julian of Clonum attacks Augustine for that the ghost of Manichaeism has an echo in the ghost of the particular location of sin and evil as sexual within as, as lust driven within Western Christianity. I think you could, you, you were worried about a historicism there. I think you can make a very good historical case. <laughs> My two cents. So yeah. one other thing to note about Manichaeism's influence with respect to the main themes of this pod is that Augustine's account of creation being divided between the city of God and the city of the devil is thoroughly dualistic. And when narrating the city of the devil, Augustine uses controversies and disagreements with the Manichaeans to think through the fall of the devil from heaven as his sort of sparring partner in working out what this looks like. For example, the Manichaeans who knew and used the New Testament for their own ideas would point to verses from the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John to indicate that the devil had been bad from the beginning. And this echoes what the War Scroll says about Belial, by the way. The Manichaeans would then use this point to claim that evil and darkness was a rival source of being and power against goodness and light. So, John 8.44 reads, he, that is the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and did not stand fast in the truth. So if the devil was never in or of the truth and a murderer from day one, this suggests that he was either made this way by God or that there is a shadow side of existence, the dark side of the force, if you like, i.e. a moderate versus a radical dualism. And very, that's like a very Lady Gaga born this way moment. Was the devil born this way, a murderer from the beginning? So Augustine's rebuttal to this claim is foundational for later de demonology in the Western tradition. Basically, so this is the substance of, us, of it, he writes that if the devil was made or created evil, then he never actually commits a sin. There is no moral responsibility there, right? Takes away the freedom, the, um, the willpower of yeah. Satan, in, if that's the case. Right. So Adam Kotzko, for example, writes that freedom of the will is the apparatus for generating responsibility and thus culpability. And without it, the idea of evil loses its pop while God is indicted for the moral ills of the universe. So this is kind of a, a theme that we've been talking about through yeah. the pod about yeah. where does responsibility lie? How does it relate to freedom? And um, especially when it's located in the figure of Satan or um, or the devil. You can't have moral responsibility if you take away free will, in other words. So Augustine's reply to this conundrum is to parse the words as follows. By writing the devil did not stand fast in the truth, this suggests that he was standing there to begin with, but opted not to remain. Augustine reads every indication that the devil was bad in the beginning as not meaning at the first instant of creation, 
but from the first moment of his sin, which in Augustine's case is pride. Right. I, I just think it's like so striking that this really foundational set of claims about demonology and about the origin of evil come out of a very, you know, which, which seemed like almost, you know, grand in scale, come out of a very particular, you know, very highly contextualized set of disagreements with the Manichaeans. And I, I think that that's, you're talking about haunting, like it's another site of haunting where, uh, this, these big ideas about how we should think about responsibility and freedom in an evil or whether God's responsible comes out of this almost, you know, provincial set of arguments. Yeah, it's, it's kind of shocking, um, the holes in the center of this tradition. It's one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this pod, because w- the origin of evil is really obscure in the Orthodox Christian tradition from the scriptural yeah. accounts through these, um, you know, patristic uh, conversations, it just seems to keep slipping through your hands. And then it's it so contingent. Like, it's like, so yeah. you would think it would be like the central point, And yet it, it seems to be worked out through these highly, I mean, we should, I guess we're historians. We shouldn't be shocked a bit at this, but right. it's still, it's still somehow so surprising that it's like, Oh, like it's a, it's your disagreement with this one particular, you know, sect that emerged from Mesopotamia. That is like how, you when we come to like this sort of massive doctrinal uh system and that's not to that's not to sort of short sell the power and influence of the Manichaeans but it just it's I don't think it's how we're conditioned to thinking about great ideas and their development exactly it's like guys maybe we could have thought about this before like we happened to have this argument like how did the system even work until these ideas were a little bit more um solidified yeah. Um, again, as historians, we should not be surprised, but right. it is. But that's why it's fun to be a historian. It's, it's fun to be, it's fun to be surprised, yeah. I think. Sometimes. But anyway, how, how should we think about, so the Manichaeans obviously loom large in terms of influence. What about mm-hmm. the Cathars? Well, for starters, combating the Cathar influence in Southern France sparked two important reactions in the Orthodox Church. So first, the launch of the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, we've mentioned them a little bit earlier, which marked a turning point in the religious culture of the Middle Ages. So Mm -hmm. second, it was crucial for building momentum in the medieval Inquisition. The Inquisition's attempts to stamp heresy, stamp out heresy rather, collide with the topic of our discussions in the 14th century when Pope John XXII declared the invocation of demons as a form of heresy. So why does that matter? In other words, the battle against false opinions on doctrine, right, heresy, morphed into a fight against the devil himself. And this would contribute greatly to legitimating the coming witch hunts of the early modern period. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. So like we have this huge development internal to Orthodox Catholicism. Another thing we might think about is the sort of the line of descent against the main the mainstream of Western Catholicism. Mm. Um, and so, you know, like other uh, heretical groups like the Waldensians, there, there's a sense, and sometimes historians try to figure out whether the Cathars influenced the Protestant Reformation, you know, the big schism, the big critique of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and, you know, groups like the Waldensians who do have a sort of a more direct genealogy to Protestantism, um, they're very distinct in their theology, yet I think there's definitely a potential for overlap sociologically and in terms of the ideas. But the, you know, 
there's also the sense of like a broader culture of critique against the status quo that both the Cathars and other groups were a part of. Yes. Um, and so like they have similar complaints against about the church, you know, they have are skeptical about free will and sort of lean towards a more predestination view of things. Um, they're skeptical about the magic of the sacraments. They're very critical of the loose morals and the sort of self-importance of the clergy. And all of these things get taken up by Protestants in ensuing centuries. Um, and so it's like, in a way, it's like the, the, the kind of influence you were talking about with the Dead Sea Scrolls, where it's hard to say precisely how the Cathars influence later Christian movements and schisms, but there seems to be something in the water culturally where they were. It's, it's hard to overlook the fact that like where the Cathars were in Southern France, you know, the, the site of intense violence from the Crusades and, and persecution through the Inquisitions, this is the, then the, the hotbed for French Calvinism, which yes. itself has a very bloody set of confrontations with, with uh, the French crown and the Catholic church. I must've felt like a kind of cultural deja vu in that, yeah. in, in Tra- the you know, trauma, you know, like trauma, here. you know, you know, like re- trauma, you know, repeating, right? Exactly. These conflicts with a particularly political conflicts motivated by these religious differences. Yeah. Right, right. So these conflicts between various groups, Orthodox or, and heretical alike, forced Orthodoxy to finally develop some tentative answers to what seemed like central questions about the nature of evil and the person of the devil. At the same time, Orthodoxy isn't really the hero of our story here. What we're painting is that it's these, it's in these conflicts between the various groups that you have this picture, larger picture of a history emerging. It is the history of the conflicts that we're painting, not a history of like the hero of the story of orthodoxy, right? Right, right. right. And even what we're going to be treating next time, which is Milton's Paradise Lost, Milton himself is runs pretty afoul of a of a of orthodox accounts, mm-hmm. um, and it's and he's he's a central canonical figure, um, and so like the we keep using the the sort of the the metaphor of haunting to describe what goes on what lingers from these conflicts, um, and we can see how there isn't a neat inside and outside to uh, the sort of the development of ideas about evil and the devil that both the orthodox visions and the, and the heretical visions are like really highly porous and are sort of seeping into each other. And that's, and, and we, and it's easy to lose track of that seepage. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what I think one of the interesting things about going to Milton next is we're in a step in a certain way. It will seem like we're stepping outside of what our reading of religious texts and quote unquote religious history, but really we're just coming in at it from a poetic angle, from a literary angle. And it'll be interesting to see how the various dualisms we've talked about from the cosmic and military dualism we see in the Essenes, for example, um, to the ethical dualism we've seen, we're gonna be turning and certainly we'll be talking a lot about psychological dualism, getting inside for the first time really, the devil's head. So with that, see you next time. Thanks, guys. See you next time. This pod is produced by Infernal Productions and is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.